the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Clearly, events in the world demonstrate that evil exists in the world, but some are questioning now. Well, if this be the case, then it clearly must be evidence that if God was so loving, he would not permit people to suffer evil of that sort. I mean, how can God allow this to happen to people that he claims to love? We'll talk tonight about some of the big myths concerning Christianity as we're joined by best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland. He is a religion and culture expert, and uh, his new book is called The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, thank you so much. You're very gracious. It's an honor to be on. And uh, no doubt you're hearing much as what we're hearing from a lot of people around the country that are trying to struggle, they're trying to make sense of what we saw in these heinous attacks in Paris last week. 129 lives claimed. And some would simply look at this and say, well, look, um, this shows that evil not only exists in the world, but raises a big question. If God is so loving, as so many Christians try to claim that he is, uh, then he wouldn't allow this kind of evil to happen. He wouldn't allow this kind of a thing to befall people that he claims to love. Yeah, you know, C.S. Lewis dealt with this more than 50 years ago in his uh, very famous book, The Problem of Pain. Lewis said, you know, what if God made the world such that if an assassin fired a gun at a person, God made the physics uh, such that the bullet would turn to rubber and just bounce off. Um, and so people might try to perpetrate evil, but it would never be possible to happen. Uh, Lewis said, and I agree, you know, that's just not, not how things are. We, we have a free will, and we're moral agents. And the, the mere fact that God holds us accountable for what we do is proof that, you know, we, we uh, make moral choices, and we're, we're in a world of sin. It's a fallen world. Now, the solution to that problem is Jesus Christ, and that our sins can be forgiven through Christ, what he did on the cross, our lives, and our, even our desires can be changed by God's work in, our, in, in us. But um, the Paris attacks sad as they are, are another reminder that there there is moral evil in this world. You know, Craig, what, what makes it interesting is uh, really for 40 years since the sexual revolution of the 1970s and the skyrocket, skyrocketing divorce rate and uh, free sex, premarital sex, now the redefinition of marriage, basically the 
the hedonistic track we've been on for 40 years has been sold to the culture based on the idea that there are no moral boundaries. I mean, there, there's no sin, there's nothing we're doing wrong, because there, there's no universal moral code. And yet, when something like this happens that clearly is evil, and we know it is, people cry, uh, this is immoral. Uh, and so our culture, you know, we can't have it both ways. Either there is a God that we answer to, and therefore we should live morally, or there's not a God that we answer to, and we, we are headed for anarchy. Um, clearly, we Christians, we know there is a God, and we want the whole world to know him. What about the argument, though, Dr. McFarland, that um, religion, and certainly I think demonstrably so in this case, religion is a major source of wars in the world, of evil in the world, and therefore people will be inclined to say this, therefore, is evidence to be sure that religion is evil. And, of course, they, they paint this with a very broad brushstroke. Uh, they do. They do. In fact, even last night, I'm on the road traveling, and I stopped to get, um, you know, put fuel in a rental car, and I was talking to the guy at the gas station, and he was saying, well, you know, we need to be rid of all religion because this is proof that religion is evil. Um, you, you know, Christianity clearly is different than, than the world's religions. Religion is based on man trying to work his way to God. Christianity, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is the story of God coming from heaven to earth uh, to pay for our sins on the cross. Christianity um, says, love your neighbor. Christianity says that we are to forgive our enemies. Um, Islam, on the other hand, that, that really, since its uh, birthing in the 600s, has been a, a violent religion. Uh, and there have been other totalitarian regimes and uh, all manner. It's almost like an endless list of the crazy ideologies that have driven people to do pathological things. Um, we, we've got to, not only in our words, show that Christianity is different, but in our lives. And, and, I, and I will say this, and I've, it's been my privilege to write on this extensively um, for the last 2,000 years. Show me where uh, hospitals are built. Show me where wells are dug to provide water. Show me where uh, orphans are cared for and the elderly and the infirm, where life is defended and the human condition improved. And I'll show you where Christianity is. Um, look, look at America right now, the, the Syrian refugee issue, with um, something like 11 million uh, victims of the Syrian civil war over the last four years, and now 10,000 that uh, we're trying to figure out what to do with. And we can talk about the Syrian civil war if you want to, but here's the thing. Why is it that East is trying to come West? West is not trying to go East. It's because the West is built on a Judeo-Christian moral code. Um, in the West, we have cared for people uh, in times of crisis. In the West, we have uh, uh, welcomed the huddled masses with food, clothing, and shelter because the West was built on a Christian worldview that said man is made in God's image, and when I'm honoring you, I'm honoring the one whose image you bear. Look, look, look at the the Islamic world where life is cheap and one is rewarded uh, for bloodshed. 
that that's not what the West and certainly not what America was built on. And we must, to a new generation, remind people that uh, religion has spilled much blood, but the world is better for the Christian worldview that has said, love your neighbor and feed the hungry and forgive the oppressor. And so uh, all of this that we're seeing today, the world has become a powder keg. That's not proof that there is no God. It's proof that we need to return to the God we've abandoned. And certainly, I think, quite telling, as you point out, Dr. McFarland, that as we've seen this exodus uh, from uh, Syria in the wake of this civil war there, that overwhelmingly the largest number of refugees have all sought refuge in the Christian West, either in Western Europe or here in the United States. And isn't it ironic that if you take countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Dubai, United Arab Emirates, which are per capita significantly wealthier than even a country like the United States, that all of those very oil-rich, wealthy nations combined have welcomed less than half of the number of refugees that the United States alone has accepted. I think that's telling. We're going to take a time out. We're visiting today with Dr. Alex McFarland, exposing the 10 biggest myths about Christianity. We'll get back to some more examples as our conversation continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Dr. Alex McFarland, our guest tonight. He is a religion and culture expert, author of a new book called Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, The God You Thought You Knew. That's the title of the book, by the way, the book newly published by Bethany House. You'll find it online at alexmcfarland.com or through the usual suspects, including Amazon. Let's talk about another big one. We often get this argument, and Richard Dawkins, I mean, at all, seem to hammer away the hardest at this, that Christianity and modern science today are completely incompatible, particularly when you look at this from the viewpoint of the origins of man. Mm-hmm. Yes, we get that a lot. Uh, but really, uh, what I always ask when it, whenever I hear that is, if somehow science has disproven God, I, I say, well, you know, which branch of the sciences are you speaking of, and uh, which scientific discovery? Because, you know, every branch of the sciences, you know, whether you're talking about one of the uh, branches of biology or chemistry or physics or forensic pathology, I mean, there are these sciences, and every every uh, department of the, the sciences has its own, you know, playbook and methodologies. Um, which scientific discovery do you presume has, quote, disproven God? Uh, and, you know, in fact, the, the four basic forces of physics, um, you know, gravity and electromagnetism and the strong and weak nuclear forces. Uh, I was at a luncheon Saturday with a, a couple of very um, esteemed scientists who said, you know, we still really don't know why these things are as they are. Uh, why is the universe... Uh, structured to sustain life, and they call it the anthropic principle, why uh, the planet Earth seems uniquely fine-tuned for human life. Uh, If anything, the discoveries of science point to the fact that there had to be an intelligent creator to not only uh, cause uh, the origin of matter and the creation of the universe, the beginning of the universe, but to fine-tune 
to orchestrate the conditions such that life is possible. So uh, in no way has science disproven God. Uh, in fact, Craig, let me give you, let me give you an example. Um, for instance, uh, evolution and most, most science departments in American universities and many schools are operated from a com- completely naturalistic uh, presupposition that only the physical empirical world is is all there is but evolution for instance which supposedly uh you know depends on gene mutations uh to give all the varieties of life that we see uh well gene mutations can uh you know rearrange the existing genetic material or cause loss of information but a mutation doesn't add any new information to the genome and if you want fins to become feathers and feathers to become fingers, you have to introduce new information to the genome, which we've never observed mutations doing. So uh, naturalism, and specifically uh, Darwinian evolution, is, is really a fake position because it's not observable. It never has been. Well, this, in fact, of course, is one of the significant scientific shortcomings of all of this, that oftentimes we've heard uh, these glowing reports of the evidence they find of the uh, the evolutionary chain down through the centuries or millennia, and then we come to more recent recorded time where we have not only a very accurate fossil record, um, we have other records up to including photographic evidence going back over the course of 100, 150 years, and yet there's there's no demonstrative uh, continued evidence for this evolutionary process, which makes you wonder is if all the evolution took place at the front end and on the backside here, there's nothing that doesn't make sense. It, it, it's not logical from the standpoint of it seems as if then this, this, uh, this ability of, of, of the world of creation, or the wrong term, I guess, for the evolutionists, uh, of the Big Bang to continue to evolve itself seems somehow gotten stuck. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, we learn about the Cambrian explosion, that life appears in the fossil record fully formed. It was my privilege a year ago to spend 11 days in the Grand Canyon, and we saw many, many fossils, uh, including a fossilized um, log, uh, the, the main structure of a tree that was probably 25, 30 feet long, fossilized through, quote, millions of years of strata, that uh, and by the way, I believe the fossil record is the result of the flood. L- let me just say this: I, I definitely do believe in a global flood. I think the topography of the land and the the Earth's geologic um, structure and makeup um, looks like uh, a worldwide flood, and the fossils were created through uh, rapid burial in the mud, the water, the silt, and intense pressure. But all of the fossils are always complete, fully formed uh, organisms. Uh, the Cambrian explosion, life appears fully formed. Uh, and any of the so-called transitional forms that ostensibly were one species morphing into another, uh, fragments of teeth, fragments of bone, this huge inference that, that I believe is imposed over um, uh, fragments that have been found. And, you know, it's, it's funny how, you know, entire creatures and villages have been constructed out of just some little fragments here and there. And there, there's wild disagreement uh, and just much speculation about what this or that thing might have been. 
So the question is, has there ever been uh, empirical, verified proof of evolution? And the answer is no. What What's interesting is 156 years into Darwinism now, you know, because, uh, uh, and by the way, I've got... I've got Origin of the Species and Descent of Man. I've got a second edition, Descent of Man. And I've got a, um, a sixth edition of Origin of the Species that in, in only 20 years after its first publication, it had been through six or seven printings. Very influential. And basically what we've had for a century and a half uh, have been voices like Richard Dawkins that just insist Darwinism is a fact. Uh, to dare question it is is ignorance or arrogance, uh, but the evidence is not there. It's like Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. It, well, show me the evidence, and the evidence is, is just not there. Well, moreover, I mean, not only do we find this this what appears to be as you're suggesting this 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 jump in the fossil record that probably requires a greater degree of faith to accept all of that than it does to simply look at uh, the biblical Genesis account of the origins of man. Uh, then too, I've always found it quite curious, and I have yet to have a humanist scientist be able to give me a solid answer for this other short of than just a lot of gobbledygook when I pose the question. So if we want to prescribe to the Big Bang Theory that suggests that at one point uh, this big explosion took place that created all matter, and you're telling me that out of this then, out of chaos came organization. Why is it there's only one record, according to what you're telling me, of that ever happening? When is the last time you read a story where somebody blew something up and out of it came a building or a bridge? Uh, or a road was suddenly constructed once they've dynamited some rocks with a with TNT. The fact of the matter is, there's 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 no account everywhere anywhere of destruction of chaos creating organization. Uh, that's a great point, Craig. I mean, we have never seen chaos be the mother of order. Something else that is, I mean, I know this is getting rather philosophical, and frankly, I appreciate the chance to talk this way, but. Uh, we have never observed uh, inanimate matter developing consciousness. Let's just say somehow there was a primordial soup, and we don't know where it came from or how it got there. And let's let's just say somehow some uh, proteins and amino acids uh, evolved and life somehow began. How did consciousness develop? Because, you know, right now if I say 2 plus 2 and everybody thinks, okay, 4, all right, your, your brain, with all of the neurons and synapses, there's the physical tissue that is your brain, but the thoughts that you're thinking and the reasoning, uh, that's not the same as the tissue. So there's, it's what um, scholars call the mind-body problem. We have a body, and even if by some you know, happenstance that evolved, what is the origin of consciousness? A Richard Dawkins, a materialist, has no answer for the origin of consciousness, and then how did um, what we call individuation, how did multiple centers of consciousness develop? Because, you know, you're Craig Roberts, you're thinking your thoughts, I'm Alex McFarlane, I'm somebody different. Uh, there's no, there's no, from an evolutionary standpoint, there's no accounting for uh, consciousness, mind, uh, intelligence, personality. Um, it, it's been said that man is a soulish creature. We're, we're, we're in an evolutionary mindset, just a, a, a moist robot. 
but we're, but we're not that. There is there's something that is the real us beyond just the physical tissue. Sure, not only in terms of personality, but things like you're suggesting, like individual choice. I mean, uh, is it conceivable for the bacterium flagellum just to one day wake up and say, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. I think I'm going to go do something differently. Well, it just <laughs> the reality is there's never any evidence anywhere for that ever happening. And you're right, it, 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 for, for Stephen Hawkins um, uh, or Richard Dawkins, it provides a, a tremendous quandary, doesn't it? Well, it, it really does, and I'm glad you bring up the bacterial flagellum because uh, uh, there's what um, what Michael Behe uh, calls irreducible complexity, that you've got um, a, a motor, a shaft, a propeller, uh, basically bushings, and, and all of these things at an infinitesimally small level in, in the cell, uh, the bacteria has a... a propeller-like tail that can spin at 100,000 rotations per minute and then reverse direction in, in a fraction of a second. And if even one of the parts were not there, uh, it, it would not be functional. So how did uh, this irreducibly complex, it's like a mousetrap, seven parts in a mousetrap. If you have even one of the parts missing, it's inoperable. So how did these parts evolve in the absence of the other. Because, see, all of the parts are interdependent. How did they evolve in the absence of the other? Listen, I've had debates and dialogues, and, and some of the hardcore evolutionists will say, well, it's an enigma. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Then you are a person of faith. Um, if, if you're willing, all of the things that, you know, when, when your naturalistic worldview hits a wall and can go no farther, they'll say, well, it's an enigma. Okay, well, good for you. Uh, you certainly do have a lot of faith because we've never we've never seen something come from nothing. We've never observed uh, chaos bring order. Uh, we've never observed inanimate matter develop consciousness. We've never observed information come from uh, a non-intelligent source, and the DNA is information. So my my point in this is it's much more plausible. Uh, when we look at something like the Big Bang, and scholars wonder what was before the, the Big Bang. You know, there was an infinitely dense bit of matter and energy, and it exploded outward in all directions. Uh, well, what, whatever was before the Big Bang that caused the universe, it had to be beyond time, it had to be immaterial, it had to be all-powerful, it had to have uh, in, at least intelligence, because there's so much order and structure in the universe, um, many have said it, it has to be something uh, analogous to a super intelligence. Well, when they talk about what was before the universe that was the cause of this great big effect, they're giving the attributes of God. And... We say, okay, Big Bang, great. We know who the banger was. Yeah, I uh, at one time listened to one of these debates amongst a couple of these uh, scientists going on and on. And uh, after a while, having headed down that very same road, I thought to myself, if this man would just take a moment, take two steps backwards, he'd realize that his attempt to try and explain away how man came to be is actually providing further evidence for the existence of what he calls, uh, you know, something that's the enigma 
and we would put we would assign to that the definition as uh, what we know today as God. Our thanks to Dr. Alex McFarland, some great insights, a wonderful book, one that I think you'll certainly uh, learn about, uh, learn from, and uh, also use it a wonderful tool in sharing your faith with others. The God You Thought You Knew, Exposing the Ten Biggest Myths About Christianity, newly published by Bethany House. And again, you can get uh, information on the web at alexmcfarland.com or order it online through amazon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values. And it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 ways, 30 days to strengthen your family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk. And a new book out tonight, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Hagelin, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to, to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, you know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spends. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world, and the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income, and the marketers know that, and so they're after that share of the pie, and unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this. Um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters, to sit down and go over them with their children, too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world. 
versus you against your child. And, you know, the and irony really is really important. For, for our parents, when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, I- these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is, is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. And even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical. And the pediatrician, female pediatrician, actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, "Uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the long to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that, and uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, and what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um and so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that that is key, because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God honoring with the kind of uh, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters. And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle and all of a sudden now there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child in a, at a level in which we can really have not only effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Hegland. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegeling continues right after this. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting, and you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle, because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on the television or the internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, there are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus in equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices. But my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live leave our house wondering what is right. And they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger, and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, if you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And, of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess, at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, you do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, you have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that I work for others um, that are in the book as well. And, uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and and starting afresh and anew tonight if if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent and the child is watching you is it important that you're you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example yes it's always important i've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to to make good friendships and uh part of that includes why don't you mom and dad take a few minutes to examine your own friendship Um, Your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, There's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, 
there are a lot of moms and dads that won't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you've underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here. And you think, oh, that's just a little white lie. A lie is a lie. And your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and, and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of, one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think beginning, oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is as long as there is breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, mom was my hero, dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness, it's so important. Um, and again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie <laughs> star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great-grandfather or grandfather who who served in World War II. Or, you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home um, to, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models. You know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there. Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to uh, influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well. 
no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive. And um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. Its author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Hegland. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout, bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's theresurgent.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.